From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our guest this hour is a member of the New York State Assembly. Assemblymember Marjorie Burns from District Number 133 is our guest. We've been welcoming members of the New York State Assembly and the New York State Senate since early January, since Governor Kathy Hochul delivered first her State of the State address and then the governor's budget address in which she laid out some of the priorities that she has and how she would like to pay for them. And now we're hearing from members of the legislature on where they agree and disagree and what they would like to see prioritized, especially now and especially before April 1. Assemblymember Marjorie Burns is in term number three and district number 133. Welcome back to the program. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, remind people where what district number 133 entails, Assemblymember. Oh, well, it keeps changing. It's the... Uh... Every time they redistrict or tweak things, uh, it, it's been ever-evolving. When I first took office, which was only uh, uh, five years ago, I'm in my sixth year now, um, about 45% of my district was in Monroe County, which in included Pittsford, Menden, Wheatland, and Rush. Uh, but at this point, the district that I'm serving in is uh, only Wheatland, Rush, and Monroe, all of Livingston, nine towns in Ontario County, the western side. I have uh, uh, four towns in northern Steuben, Wheatland, or uh, excuse me, um, uh, Cohocton, Wayland, uh, Prattsburg, Dansville, and over in Wyoming County, I also have uh, Perry. But Next year, it's changing again, and I won't be running for re-election, but my seat will, in Monroe County, be down to uh, the town of Rush, which will be less than 3% of the entire district. That'll be the only part left in Monroe County. When it started out, it was about 45%. Now Monroe County will be down to about uh, less than 3 uh, All of Livingston and, uh, again, the same towns in Ontario, but there are two towns being picked up in uh, Steubend, uh, Avoca and Wheeler, and over in Wyoming. Uh, right now, I represent Perry, but Covington and Castile are coming into the district. So it's, like I said, it's it's been evolving significantly, going from 50, almost 50% of the district being in a very... Uh, urban environment. Well, it wasn't the city. It was certainly a very urban. Urban or high, suburban, yeah. Yeah. Uh, high density living uh, type environment. And now it will be 100% very rural. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm familiar with the towns in your district thanks to Little League Baseball schedule. Uh, I travel all throughout your district. <laughs> I'm very familiar. Um, and as someone who is not running for re-election, does that change how you consider your job and your work and your efforts in this last year for you? No, it actually doesn't. Um, we uh, it, Right now, it's a busy time in Albany as we're starting to work on the budget, and then even after the budget, wrapping things up in June with uh, the last legislation that will go through during this session year. Uh, but the amount of work in the district office between myself and my staff where we're dealing with all the constituent issues, constituent uh, needs, never changes. Um, it's it's there all the time, and it just uh, it's incredibly important that it all be dealt with. So your point about the district shifting to 100% rural starting next year, when you go back to your first term when it was 45% suburban and, and kind of that mix— Certainly, it is largely rural now. It's going to become 100% rural. Absolutely. What do you think, is there a rural and sort of city divide in culture and in understanding? In other words, do you think people misunderstand each other or struggle to understand ways of life and speeds of life, et cetera, priorities? No, I absolutely do. Um, you know, the biggest example I can think of is about a year and a half ago, right after the pandemic was over and we were starting to meet again in person, I had the occasion to meet in in person a woman from the uh, from Bron the Bronx who, who I'd never met before, even though we were on the same committees. And when I was trying to explain to her where my district was, and I said, well, my district starts about 10 miles south of the city of Rochester. <clears throat> and she looked at me and she goes, and this is no disrespect to her. This is just the divide. And she said, I think I've heard of the city of Rochester. 
And when I tried to explain, I, you know, I kind of joked. I said, well, I got 62,000 people in my county and about 19,000 cows. And she said, that's on her bucket list. She was, she's never been to a farm. She's never seen a cow. And that's on her bucket list to do sometimes. The reason I mention this is because we have a majority of of Democrats making decisions every day that affect our farms, both on what kind of pesticides they can or can't put down, um, you know, uh, wages for uh, farm workers and things of that nature. So they're making decisions that dramatically affect the people in my district when they have no concept of what uh, our farmers do and our rural communities do um, for a living and what's needed. So what's an example of either a piece of legislation or something that's impacting people in your district that you think reflects that lack of understanding? Well, one of them, I think, is the um, right now with the, uh, the requirement of um, of of having overtime after a certain number of hours in with farm workers, because uh, again, I truly believe that it that it's it's not uh, ill motives. I believe it's ignorance. Is that they truly don't understand that farms and farm workers uh, don't work nine to five jobs like people that are in a uh, uh, a factory. Or, or in most types of employment, that cows need to be milked three times a day. Um, and our farmers aren't just working nine to five jobs. One time, uh, the uh, uh, chairman of the board of supervisors in Livingston County is, is a small farmer. And I went to try to call him at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. I thought, oh, for sure, he'll be done for the day and I can talk to him. And he was still out on his tractor. So, I mean, these are jobs that need to be done when the crops are ready to be harvested. Things need to be done um, well into the night, 24-7, to get them up when, the, the, when they're ripe and when uh, weather permits. And it doesn't allow for, well, we'll stop at 5 or 6 tonight and we'll start again tomorrow. It just doesn't work that way. Talking to Assemblymember Marjorie Burns, I'm looking at a note on the legislation you're talking about. Correct me if I'm wrong here. So starting this year, so starting January 1 of this year, now in effect, the overtime threshold for those employees goes from 60 to 56 hours a week. It will be reduced by four hours a year until 2032 when it reaches 40 hours a week. That's an initiative that's been in the work for some time. So in other words, yes. they, they want people in all sectors, including farm work, to clock in, essentially, and measure every hour. Yes. And then once you reach that certain threshold, you have to pay overtime. And what's happening, though, is because a lot of, especially the small farmers, they can't afford it. So when, it, when their employee hits that threshold, rather than them working more for overtime, they're telling them, that's it. Um, you're done for the week. So... What I'm being told is that effectively the uh, uh, farm workers who this is designed to help them improve their financial situation, it is actually hurting them because once they've hit the requisite hours, they're getting cut off. So either a farm can't afford to pay someone that overtime and the work isn't getting done or they're forced to pay and they it threatens whether they can stay in business? Yeah, and a lot of the crop farmers are now also looking to what kind of crops can be raised more mechanized so that they don't need as many farm workers. You know, they're all looking at ways to adjust and adapt um, in order to decrease the number of hours and the number of employees needed. So I truly believe ultimately this was going to hurt what they're really trying to effectively accomplish. Well, it's, this is where I would say I'd like to spend more time separate to this conversation this hour, kind of really trying to understand this issue better. Um, and if uh, listeners in the farming community, I'd love to hear from you. Um, you hear the assembly member saying that this is maybe a well-intended but but sort of ill-consequenced bill uh, that is going to hurt farms. So send us an email, connections at wxxi.org. We'll follow up. You hear where the assembly member is, but she's in the minority in, in Albany. It's hard to get a lot done uh, in the minority. They try. Um, we do try. You do try. <laughs> we do try. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sort of predict what 
Democrats who passed this might say, but I think they would probably say is overtime rules and changing them in this way is meant to be pro-worker. And so do you feel that what you're describing on farms, should there be a carve out for agricultural work or do you oppose the change in overtime rules for for all sectors? I mean, I, I, and I don't know if this is just targeting agriculture. Yes, this is targeting okay. agriculture and farms. OK. Um, now, what about larger operations? You know, we don't have a ton of larger operations in our area. In your district, it's small farms. Yeah, but we do have a, a, a number of dairy farms that have two or three thousand cows that are milked every day. Uh, and they do have a number of farm workers, and obviously uh, many of them also uh, are, are are growing crops also, and that's what they also fe- help fe- use to feed the the cows. And everyone has expressed that this is not sustainable as it goes forward. Um, you were mentioning the, bo- the f- before though about being in the minority and not being able to accomplish anything. No, I didn't say nothing. <laughs> it's it's a challenge for Republicans. Uh, it, it is a challenge, but there are some ironies. One of the ironies is um, I had a bill that would uh, make it so that solar panels. It was the Solar Panel Collection Act. And that solar panels and Tamomera down in the southern tier had one for wind turbines. That if you put them up, you have to be able, when uh, either they're broken or are, are decommissioned, you have to be able to recycle them. And right now, neither are recycled. I think once before we talked about down in the bath area how there is uh, like a mountain of uh, wind turbine yeah, parts I, I that were sitting there. Yeah. yeah, and they're just sitting there. And, and what they are doing is cutting them up into somewhat smaller pieces and burying them. So we're not exactly being uh, green energy there. But anyway, my bill last year got, uh, it was killed in committee. Uh, they said it wouldn't go forward. It was what they uh, uh, called laid aside, which means it's dead. But then I read in the newspaper a week or two ago where the, uh, the New York State um, DEC has established a, a, a goal of 85% of uh, all recyclables by 2050. And they came up with this new comprehensive plan. And their comprehensive plan has a lot of things that would need to be recycled. And it does include solar panels, panels and, and wind turbines. And it's like, all right, here's the irony. The majority who claims to be green energy just killed my bill at the same time the state DEC is coming up with a comprehensive plan saying, gee, we need to do this. And that, that really just grates. <laughs> so I, I hope, I hope Assemblymember, my comment about being in, in the legislative minority it was not meant to, to cause offense. I'm I'm acknowledging the realities of the challenge of being oh, no, a Republican in Albany. Okay. Oh no no no! I I don't take offense, but I, I, every day we'll see uh, that I had a bill. I have a bill right now, or that I had introduced uh, for a couple of years in the Judiciary Committee <clears throat> that would make some changes in the domestic relations law, and it would make it so that if you were getting a separation agreement irretrievable breakdown of the marriage, which was one of the grounds for divorce, could be one of the grounds for a separation agreement. It was inadvertently left out when changes were made in the laws before. Well, so last June, the chair of the committee pulls me aside, who's a Democrat, and he said, this is a great bill. This is a phenomenal bill, but it'll never go anywhere because he controls what what uh, uh, legislation gets advanced in the committee. He said, it's not going to go anywhere with your name on it. But if you give me the bill and let me have my name on it rather than your name on it, (laughs) then it'll advance and it'll get through probably next session. So I gave him the bill because the idea is to to pass the law and to uh, make better results for people in the state. And regrettably, it means that it can't be under our names. And it's happened before. There's a number of Republicans that give up their bills and their names on it uh, in order so a Democrat can sponsor it. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, it goes flying through. 
Politics is beautiful, isn't it? It's a wonderful it's thing. <laughs> now, but now, I understand your point about a bill that a Democrat literally is saying, it's a great bill. It's got to be under the Democratic umbrella. Otherwise, it goes nowhere. And mm-hmm. that, that grading, I understand that. What you're describing with solar panels and wind turbines, I could see the DEC saying, look, what we're doing is different. We are calling for an increase in an overall recyclability of the materials to a threshold goal of 85% by X year. Right. But we don't want to stop the turbines you see down as you drive 390 south and you see them up on the mountain there or you see them down near Bath and Avoca. Um, if you're driving at night, you'll see them blinking red. You know, so so I think what the DEC would say is they're, they might say they're concerned that your bill is designed to actually kill green energy now as opposed to say let's continue to do it better incrementally but let's not shut down solar let's not shut down wind now what do you think um i i would tend to disagree i think that what it comes down to is um that if you're going to put something up and you're for the purpose of green energy you should already have in mind that when it is it, when it breaks or it's decommissioned at the end of its lifespan, that there is a way to um, to recycle it. And again, they they had no problem with including it in their comprehensive plan. And I'm sure at some point in the future, it's going to march forward in that area. But those of us who actually um, are trying to espouse some form of realistic goals now which is what the majority claims they want, um, they turn away. Do you think those turbines should be shut down right now until they're more recyclable? No, no, no. Okay. Um, I, no, I don't think that. But what I do believe is that, you know, we're putting these things up. They're more and more going up all the time, um, uh, both solar and the, uh, um, and the wind turbines throughout my entire district. Um, on farmland, um, down in uh, Prattsburg, uh, they want to put wind turbines up down in the Naples area. I mean, it, it really is a major issue. But again, I, I my opinion is I'm in favor of whatever the community wants. If they want these types of projects, then I, I'm there to support them because I want to support my communities. What are they telling you? Do they want these projects? It depends on the community. It really does. It, it's a, a very diverse type of thing because obviously in the Naples area, they have concerns, uh, you know, being in the Finger Lakes and being in the tourist area about uh, a visual aspect. So, but about whatever, wind turbines? I kind of think they look beautiful, no? People don't like them? Amazingly enough, people don't like them. Oh, I think they look very nice. You can put them up right near my neighborhood if you like. But but you're saying so there's a diversity of opinion on this. Oh, yeah. And as a representative, you're trying to reflect what each community is telling you. Absolutely. Okay. Because I think they should be able to make their own decision. And I have always vehemently disagreed with the state trying to dictate what projects can and can't be built, um, the parameters of them. I think that we should allow local rule, home rule to control. Okay. Uh, and one other point on, on, on that. I mean, I certainly understand that. I actually thought 10 years ago when the fracking ban came in under then-Governor Cuomo that he was going to go with some version of home rule, kind of split the difference. Right. He didn't, of course, and we don't have fracking in, in this state like you do across the border in Pennsylvania. So I understand what you're saying. What would you say to those who argue, um, you know, we should work with communities, we should listen to their concerns, we should create projects that assuage as many of their concerns as possible, mm-hmm. but we've got to be really proactive to get to an eventual low or no fossil fuel future? I don't think there's any question that that is where the future's going. Uh, I've never spoken to anybody who really felt differently. But the issue is, how do you get there in a way that is uh, financially feasible and realistic. And this is one of the issues um, about the uh, electric school buses, is that the, the cost, once people started shifting towards the electric, all of a sudden you saw the cost starting to raise. So like the, the average cost that I'm being told right now is $450,000 per bus. And on top of that, 
Um, you have all the, the costs of uh, the infrastructure to get them going. And things that people don't think about is the weight of the buses uh, and any electric vehicle is a lot more than a gas or diesel powered so that these buses running, especially on a rural roads, will break down the roads and the bridges faster because of the weight. And a lot of them, yeah, and a lot of them, a lot of roads have weight restrictions. So, I mean, these are some of the things that have to be looked at. We've always, the minority has always proposed for years, uh, the whole time I've been there, that there should really be a realistic cost-benefit analysis to determine when the proper, what was proper for converting in a way that um, the schools could do it realistically. Now, um, I know that some schools in the Monroe County area have done it, and they believe that it is successful. We still think it's more experimental when it comes to rural areas um, where they're longer routes. They're going up and down hills. Um, a lot of them, they don't want to run um, uh, the heat because to run the heat in a school bus uh, uh, starts de uh, depreciating your battery power. And a lot of things of that nature that really need to be looked at before, especially in some of our areas. And again, I'm looking at my rural areas, and and they don't really have this kind of money. Now, I know the state keeps saying but that between the state and the federal government that they are going to be able to uh, subsidize and pay for these things. But to date, nobody has come up with any realistic way and they're looking at, um, I'm trying to remember, it's, it's two or three years from now, any new buses will have to be electric. And by 2035, I think it yeah, was, that's correct. that any, any buses on the road, even if they were bought now and are good for, have a 10 to uh, 15 or 20 year longevity, will have to be taken off of the road even if their lifespan hasn't gotten there yet. That's exactly. Let me just make sure. I think that's exactly right. This is from WRVO. Republican lawmakers in New York are calling on the state legislature to rescind a state directive mm -hmm. that all school buses be electric by 2035 and that districts only purchase new all-electric buses beginning in 2027. So the point that, that you make is is got several prongs here. Number one, Heavier buses, more damage on the road, going to cause more tr trouble for, especially for rural counties and municipalities that are going to struggle with their transportation departments and budgets. Absolutely. If the state said, "Okay, we hear we hear you, we're going to allocate more to support infrastructure," does that help? Um, I believe it would help, but I mean, it doesn't. It's not the be all and end all, especially when you look at uh, something that is mandatory, which is ironic because uh, last year there was a bill that passed by the majority that uh, allowed a pushback for the state fleet to turn over because um, they weren't ready. So they gave the state gave itself a buy, but they're not giving right now our school districts a buy. And while you make it mandatory, also one of the biggest electric school bus uh, manufacturers in the country, you know, recently filed for uh, for bankruptcy. So it's like, all right, well, you make it mandatory. Will we even have buses to purchase? And if so, like a lot of our fire trucks now, they're backed up years from when you buy them when they can be delivered, you know, and if you end up spending 450000 for, you know, one bus, and obviously school districts have multiple buses, and, um, but yet you could be looking potentially at years before delivery, and you have a drop-dead date that isn't being adjusted, you know, how do you ever budget for these things? And that's one of the problems also with um, the uh, – uh, uh, and I hope it changes, but in the governor's budget, she also um, did something very damaging to foundation aid for a lot of the rural schools. And basically about half of the schools will get – because she changed the formula a little bit 
about half the schools will get more money in foundation aid, which is the basic aid given to each school district to help for operating expenses. And, um, and it's the largest form of aid that the schools get. So about 50% will get more, but about 50% are going to end up getting less. And a lot of those are high-need rural schools. Um, can I give you just a couple of examples? Yes, yeah, absolutely. All right, down in my district, um, in the world of winners and losers, you know, just about every school district that I'm aware of in my district is going to lose money. Um, Honeyway uh, School District, which is in the town of Richmond in Ontario County, it's a small place, but um, they're scheduled under the governor's proposed budget to lose $1.2 million. Keshequa, uh, which is the Dalton Nunday School District, and Naples Central School District, they're both looking at, at losing almost $650,000. And all of the ones, you're welcome to have this if you'd like. Yeah. Um, all of the districts that I'm giving you a list of uh, are all losing money, and they're all poor rural school districts. You can't, and we remember when they go to do their budgets, there's also a 2% tax cap. So there is no way that they could ever make this up by just trying to increase taxes. Um, it just simply wouldn't happen. Um, so they're caught right now with, and I really do think, because I, I will say I've been to a number of meetings, including the Monroe County School Board Association, where, where the members of the majority were present. I got every uh, indication from listening to them also speak that, um, that there will be a pushback from all of us on this new foundation aid formula. So I hope it will change. But in the meantime, school districts are trying to come up with their budgets, and they have to make realistic budgets based upon what they can anticipate getting. The, uh, um, once they have a budget, it's got to be approved by the school board. There has to be a, a four-week public, here, uh, public uh, notice time for the residents to be able to review it. And we have a budget due on April 1st. Last year, we were two weeks late. So if we end up, even on April 1st, they're in a box where at that point, they've already had to make decisions as to who's going to get cut, what programs are going to get cut. And it, you're going to have winners, and you're going to have real big losers. Even right now, under the current formulas, um, our, my school districts in um, Livingston County tell me that Monroe County, because they get more money in aid and they generally have more money, they can afford to pay the same teacher ten to $15,000 more a year. So you hire a teacher or you try to hire a teacher, and at the same time that you're offering X, Another school district is offering ten to fifteen thousand dollars more. Well, I don't blame them. They're going where they can make a living because they got to support their families also. So districts are being pitted against each other. The the small districts that uh, are are way more cash strapped uh, don't have the ability to compete with hiring um, teachers. Spots are going empty. Programs are closing. This is a bad situation. Talking to Assemblymember Marjorie Burns, um, and the, the question on state education funding is one that we're going to be following in the weeks to come here. Let me grab a phone call from Rich in Rochester who wants to weigh in. Hi, Rich. Go ahead. Hey. How are you doing, Ed? Good, sir. Uh, you know, a lot of things. I, I, I'm very much an environmentalist and want to go electric. But even in these school systems that they're what we're talking about, the circuits that you're going to have to put in to to charge these buses are going to be huge to compared to circuits for cars and stuff. People aren't thinking about all these things. Have they thought about in terms interim things like uh, hybrid type systems, where it's like a gas electric bus or or hydrogen? Have they looked at any other technologies? I mean. Upstate New York gets cold, like you said. Turning those 
turning on the heat of the bus and probably on a vehicle that size, you're probably going to lose probably two-thirds of your mileage. There's all these technical things that people aren't looking at and aren't yeah. thinking about. I just I think they're putting these school systems in a horrible position. And that's why uh, the minority, that's why the Republicans have been strongly advocating for years to sit down and do a realistic cost-benefit analysis on what can be done under what real – we know it's going this direction. Nobody's denying it. But on I mean, a there's, realistic there's basis – I mean, there's definitely some Republicans who are, who are denying it. Okay. Well, I haven't spoken I to I mean, them. like the possible next president. Well, I'm I'm talking about members of the okay. Republican. You're talking con- about your caucus in yes. Albany. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm talking about my yeah my conference in Albany. Gotcha. And uh, you know, the, no one disputes that uh, that green energy is important and it's a wave of the future, but it's doing it in a way that we can transition to a point where uh, our our students. Our communities and individ- even individuals in homes are not suffering. So one other point on this, and then we're going to hit some other issues here. I absolutely understand your point when you say if you have a drop-dead date for school buses on the road for being 100% electric by 2035, yep. and you don't even know what the tech and the affordability is going to be then, that is a big, big burden and a big piece of guesswork. And you don't like the mandated part of that. You're like saying, hey, if this is a goal, let's work towards it. But let's not force districts to do it, especially if they're, as the superintendent of, of Horsehead said, and, you know, and among many others, we can't do this right now. Bob writes in to say, um, you know, that maybe this is a start. As imperfect as the electric buses are, isn't it just a start? Once the majority of public and school vehicles are electric, the manufacturers will keep getting better Due to demand, due to demand, and then something else we know that happens is cost comes down. Are you optimistic that that's going to happen? I uh, honestly am not sure, but right now with a drop dead date, school districts are being forced to make decisions right now because if they have a bus that they know is going to be at its maximum life expectancy, and they're starting to have to figure out how do we budget for four hundred fifty thousand dollars for each one. Uh, plus all of the necessary um, changes to the infrastructures in the school and everything, you know, it, and potentially looking at losses in foundation aid, um, they're just, they literally are beside themselves. And that's one of the reasons I'm pretty confident, especially after the Monroe County uh, School Board Association meeting a week or so ago. Again, we're member, a lot of members of the majority were there, majority conferences were there, that it'll change. My fear is that it won't change, though, before this year's schools are forced to come up with budgets. And um, so at that point, at least for this year, the damage is done. Talking to Assemblymember Marjorie Burns, 844-295-TALK if you want to weigh in, 844-295-8255, 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester, 263-9994. You can email the program connections at WXXI.org. Assemblymember Burns is in her final year of a, uh, serving three terms, made that promise, I think, to herself, to the people around her, to voters. She's following through. She's not running for re-election. I would like you to instruct your successor to come on this program as often as you have, because it is an absolute uh, pleasure to be able to talk to members of the legislature at length. So I'm, right. I'm glad you're here. So let's talk about a couple of other points here. I want to talk about what you said about the governor's state of the state and the budget address and your concern about spending. So what you said, and I've got a lot of notes here. Here it is. Your statement oh. on the state of the state. I'm going to read this. Here you go. You said that New York is the highest tax state in the nation, and Albany just keeps spending the people's money as if there's no end in sight. The reality is the end is here. People aren't surviving. People in communities all across our state, but particularly in small rural communities, cannot make ends meet. Businesses are closing and jobs are being lost. People are moving out of state if they can afford to do so. The people who can't, can't afford their medication and often even grocery store basics. It's heartbreaking how little Albany seems to be listening. The spending must stop now, end quote. Yeah. So now this is meant not as a I, I want to explore this because. Part of what you just talked about with school aid is the fact that this formula that Albany has put forward, that the governor's put forward, 
could short districts and they need more money from the state. But you're saying in your statement the state has to cut spending because people are are dying. So I'm trying to make sure I understand how to square all that. Well, going back just to talking about the foundation aid, actually the governor's budget, according to the governor, increases this year foundation aid across the state. So overall education spending. Yes, but what it does is it absolutely sewers the rural small rural districts that have lost population so um so that's the huge thing is while the overall money goes up my district is getting damaged and it's going down and all of the other from what i've talked especially when i've talked to uh, people who have districts along the pennsylvania border and such like that um it, it, it's the same with their school districts too so even under the old formula which had its own issues and really does need to have public hearings across the state with all of the stakeholders together to come up with a good solid foundation aid formula but um but just looking at this year while the governor pumped up i want to say seven million that might be wrong but uh increased overall financial aid the rural schools Mostly because of the loss of population, but just because the school loses population. If you've got 40 people in a classroom or if you have 20, you still need a classroom. You need a teacher. You're paying to heat the building. You're paying for all the other people that are there. Um, And um, minimum wage going up, uh, which is another one of the uh, unfunded mandates that's on our school districts as well as other types of businesses. You know, all of these costs are still there or increasing even though the population base is decreasing. Okay, and I, I hear all of that because you're, you're not saying, look, we're getting shorted and education funding is being cut. You're saying this state's going to increase education funding, but the increases are going not to the rural counties, not to the counties that are already hurting, not to the towns and districts that are already hurting. Now, if the governor came back and said, well, you just answered your own question. It's because population in those towns and districts are going down. Population's also gone down in Rochester. Population's gone down in a lot of places Mm -hmm. where some education spending could go up. Therefore, I'm wondering, do you favor simply having it equitably distributed but if that means that other districts get less, or do you want to see the districts in your district get more? That's what I'm curious about. What I want to see is, and this has not been done, although it's been talked about, is to literally across the state have public hearings with all of the stakeholders, both in urban, uh, suburban, rural districts, and all of the various stakeholders involved, be able to um, air what they need and try to come up with a uh, foundation aid formula that works best for as many as can be concerned. There's always going to be winners. There's always going to be losers. Anybody knows that when any formula is used. But it's important to try to be as equitable and as fair as possible. But like I said, I mean, even if um, some of these districts are losing a tremendous number of people, it doesn't mean that, um, that they don't have the same expenses for their schools or that they haven't gone up. And it's just demonstrably wrong to tell some students that you get a subpar education. So where can the state cut spending elsewhere then? Well, I think there's a lot of places. Look, when I first came here, and I don't, I'm, I'm probably going to get the number wrong. I want to say that the budget, just five or six years ago, was somewhere around 180 billion, somewhere around there. And now this year, it's at least proposed right now by the governor's budget to be 233 billion. 233, yeah. And and that's six billion more than last year. And um. One of the things right off the top, you know, like in last year's budget, uh, $1 billion was earmarked for migrants, and um, it ended up becoming $1.9 billion. So it almost right. doubled by the time real expenses were calculated. So this year, 
she's proposing $2.4 billion off the top to go uh, for migrant services. But that, um, if it this holds with last year, we It'll really, be closer to five. We could be talking five. We could be talking six. Because not only has, uh, obviously, more migrants are continuing to come into our, our state, but um, they're being allowed more services. Uh, more and more are being... Um, uh, allowed into the Medicaid system, which is already overwhelmed. And the uh, we have more and more people, not just, we talk, you know, we talk about migrants and normally we think of our southern border. But what we're being told um, is that there's more and more uh, of an influx of uh, illegal migrants coming in from the northern border. We are a border state with Canada. And we have more and more people that are illegally crossing into New York State from Canada. Uh, I think it's up 300 percent over the last couple of years. It's still nothing close to the southern border. No, but it's all, it, it all adds up. You know, if people are here uh, and they're receiving services, they're receiving monies. Um, I mean, and quite frankly, in my opinion, we really should be spending more money on our veterans, um, on our direct care workers who have been struggling for, for forever and keep getting promised money that they don't get. We right now in this area have nursing homes. I won't name them, but there's two or three nursing homes that I've spoken to the CEOs that in the next year or two may very well close because what they receive in Medicaid funding is uh, so much different than the cost of the daily care. We're talking about that on this program tomorrow at noon. Okay. And it, it's, um, it, you know, so it, it very well could result in a loss of, um, of beds and availability. And some of it I've gotten to know just because over the last few years, my dad's been pretty sick and in and out of a number of different nursing homes and rehab facilities. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I, I've personally watched and listen to him talk about, you know, how hard it is uh, to get care even in these homes. What can the state do? What I think we need to do is we have to prioritize. And I think we need to prioritize and look at the people that are already here, um, people who have um, spent a lifetime of being good citizens, working hard. And it's, it isn't disrespect to anybody else, but if you come into a level of uh, financial responsibility where you're required to prioritize, then I really think we need to look at our elderly. We need to look at their caregivers. And every day, I mean, my father would tell me, um, there's nobody here today to to help me bathe because the person just called in sick and didn't show up. You know, with nurses, that more and more of them, just because it's financially viable, are becoming visiting nurses, even if they're still within the same community. And as a result, so many of our hospitals, even down to Noise Hospital in Dansville, are hurting big time because the people don't want to work there. Um, they can become a visiting nurse or in many times more a traveling nurse, yeah. Yeah, or traveling, I should say, traveling can, nurse. Can the state afford to increase, you know, we, we talk about reimbursement rates, we talk about mm -hmm. funding care workers. Can the state afford to do more? I think it can afford to do more if it prioritizes. It, that $2.4 and I'm sure, yes, and I'm sure it's going to mushroom up. And if we start uh, taking even just that money and putting it to these areas that have been in need for decades and are getting into more and more trouble and difficulties. And I, I think that that would go a long way towards stabilizing our state. Um, does that mean we should spend zero on migrants? Well, you know, I, I, nobody feels, or at least I don't feel, that anybody should be left to wallow um, and live on the streets or anything like that. But again, if... You know, when we have a sanctuary state, when we have sanctuary cities where we encourage people to come, 
that doesn't help the overall situation because by encouraging people to come and then all of a sudden, like down in New York City, all of a sudden it's like, well, we need more money. We need millions and billions of more money. Well, you invited them here. You know, people are showing up because they're being promised health care. They're being promised college. They're being promised all sorts of things which aren't even readily available to uh, the people who have been residents of the state for their entire life. Or and so, so, number one, stop making those promises, you're saying? Yeah, I do. I think we need to stop encouraging people to come here with promises of, of uh, basically free things. Everything is free. You know, we'll take care of you. Um, no, no state can. It's just not viable. So I hear all of that. That means, though, that if you're voting on a budget and you, and you get to craft the budget, the number for migrant services this year is not $2.4 billion. It's... it's probably zero. We're very close to zero. Now, obviously, like Medicaid for uh, emergency services, emergency departments, things of that nature, you know, I, I, I can understand. But when we start expanding it and expanding it and expanding it and then say we have a problem with Medicaid and the Medicaid budget is out of control, well, maybe we stop putting adding more and more people on, especially those. Let's take care of the ones who are already on Medicaid. 39% of our population relies on Medicaid. If the Medicaid system goes down, and all we're doing is adding more people onto it. But if the Medicaid system goes down, our entire health insurance system goes down. Uh, I want to thank listeners who've been writing in from Yates County and, and different farm workers. And, and we're going to kind of tackle that after the show and then get our, get our thoughts together. Because I think uh, Assemblymember Burns has given us a lot to think about going forward in regards to the new overtime rules for agriculture and farms. We have covered a lot here. Um, and I, I, did want, I know you... Um, you and your colleagues have talked a lot about child care. I mm -hmm. want to ask you about how child care options for parents in rural counties and rural towns are going and, and what else you think the state could, should or should not do in regards to child care. Um, obviously, that's a major issue throughout the entire state, but I think predominantly in rural areas, it's, it's getting harder and harder to find qualified uh, child care providers, um, more and more regulations and rules. Not that there shouldn't, you know, uh, uh, be uh, uh, controls over it, but I think it's gotten to a point where people are discouraged and not interested in getting into this line of work. But yet, it is so important in order for um, uh, women and, and, in many cases, guys too, in order to go to work. They have to know that their child is somewhere where they're well cared for. So we'll just keep working on that. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I am optimistic. The governor did indicate that that was a priority of hers this year. And I do look forward to actually seeing that part of the budget. And hopefully they're going to be crafting programs and ways for people to get involved, including being able to operate out of your own home which as opposed to like a daycare center, which will make it um, easier for people to get involved. Alex writes and says, regarding migrants, the goal should literally be to make them taxpaying citizens. They are increasing our population at a time of population decline. What do you think? I have no problem with anyone who comes to this country legally. And, uh, and a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of our farm workers have been coming years after year after year to the same farms, to the same places, because they develop relationships, uh, long-term relationships with the farmers and their families. And, uh, you know, they do contribute very much to our population. You know, like tw I think uh, basically 25 percent of uh, the Mount Morris population is Spanish-speaking. But you're saying it has to be through legal means. I think it should be through legal means. Not crossing the southern border, uh, uh, you yeah. know, as, as we often see. Okay. Finally, you've talked a lot about businesses leaving the district and the concern for workers. What are some changes that are directly pro-worker that the state could engage in? Well, I think one of them is allowing a more free enterprise. I think the, the government 
is way too involved in a lot of its regulations and its controls over businesses, um, especially small businesses trying to start up. Um, it's People have told me that uh, there's websites to go on to to try to find the government forms and the requirements. And they said it's just even going onto the website, it's just overwhelming to try to figure out what you need to do to just open a simple business. So I th think we need to streamline things. We need to encourage people to want to remain in our areas. And that is going to be an uphill battle because in um, – you said you travel around the district a lot. Then you drive through the villages, you know, the small villages. I do. And um, they're substantially empty. The buildings are uh, frequently very dilapidated. And they're very, not all, but a lot of the villages are very, very sad. And what it would take to revitalize them, to make people want to stay, to invest you, we would really need to step up to the plate because uh, our our southern tier is dying. It's a pretty stark comment. I think it is. And I think all it takes is to drive through the areas. The kids graduate from school, and then they move on to go to college and other places, and they're not, they're not coming back. So it's, uh, it, it's a very sad situation. We have to invest in care. Assemblymember Marjorie Burns from District Number 133. I appreciate the time as always. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. And listeners, this is part of a series of conversations with members of the New York State Assembly and the New York State Senate that we're talking about their reaction to the governor's proposals and their own ideas for what the legislature should prioritize this year. We've got more connections coming up in a moment.